G'day mate, 40 here, going out live over Rumble, going out live over Odyssey, going out live over YouTube, going out live over Twitter and Facebook. Right, the whole gang is here. Right, Tucker Carlson, he says Joe Biden is done. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. If you're a normal person, it's a pretty weird experience watching Joe Biden's presidency get euthanized by his own party. On one hand, there's an undeniable thrill to it. You have to admit that. Biden is the most destructive president in American history. More things have broken under his watch than under any other president. Joe Biden deserves to be driven from office and disgraced. But for this, breaking federal classification rules, some of the stupidest and most dishonest laws Congress has ever passed, it's like arresting El Chapo for expired plates. It's missing the point. But it looks like that's what's going to happen. It seems like every day when a Biden's lawyer shows up with more sheaves of classified documents, like a dog who's found another dead chipmunk under the house. This bunch was in his office at Penn, the one paid for by the Communist Party of China. These were found next to his sad little midlife crisis sports car in a garage in Delaware, and so on. You keep waiting for the White House physician to announce another document trove has been discovered after a routine colonoscopy. It could happen because at this point, you know exactly where this story is heading. Permanent Washington does not want Joe Biden to run for president again. This is how they're sending that message. Even CNN has decided to become interested in Joe Biden's misdeeds two years into his presidency. They're doing segments on how classification laws protect this country from its mortal enemies like Russia. So you know for certain the order has gone out. Biden is done. What a missed opportunity this is. If you're looking for crimes that Joe Biden has committed, there is a very long list. Our country is being invaded. The world is on the brink of nuclear war. American cities have become slums. Our economy is in shambles. Even our airplanes no longer take off on time. It's a disaster, and Joe Biden and his staff have a hand in all of it. In a country with a functioning government, Joe Biden would have been impeached before the first million illegal aliens crossed over our southern border. But no one did anything to stop it. So now they're arriving at the rate of a quarter million a month. Watch. Customs and Border Protection sources exclusively tell Fox News more than 250,000 migrants were encountered at the border in the month of December, about as many people living in Scottsdale, Arizona, making it the highest month ever on record. In Eagle Pass, Texas, the migrant surge continues. Local Kinney County rancher Pam Schott had a harrowing experience with migrants on her property. And I looked out the back and I could see three illegals walking up to the house. I had uh, gotten a gun, which is an AR-15. I asked him, I said, please, you know, stop, go away, and uh, had the gun in my hands, and they, you know, just kind of looked at me and kind of smiled, and I was like, Otto, and, and just go away, and um, they refused to do so. So in a masculine society, right, in a masculine society, you'd think that, you know, massive invasion of illegal immigrants, uh, massive crime waves, right? You would think that would be the number one issue, but in our more feminized society, what's the number one issue? He didn't file documents correctly. Oy vey, he didn't file the documents correctly. We have to get rid of him because he didn't follow the HR rules, right? Masculine society, the massive upsurge in crime, massive amounts of illegal immigration, right? The, the growing threat of World War III in Europe, 
due to our massively subsidizing Ukraine's battle with Russia, you would think these would be the number one issues. We're, we're verging on World War Three. We're verging on open conflict with Russia. We've got to deal with the threat from China, and we're being distracted by what's going on in Europe, right? In masculine society, those would be the number one issues. In a feminine, feminized society, right, in our HR society, the number one issue is he didn't file these documents in the correct place. Oy vey. They're on the other side of the glass trying, trying to, to get, get in. in and not backing down. Not even backing down. Even in. though I have a oh. high, powerful rifle in my arms, they are not backing down. That was scary. A rifle Joe Biden would like to take away from her. So that writ large, is the biggest story of our lifetimes. It is the one thing Joe Biden has done that cannot be undone. Our great-grandchildren are going to live with the consequences of this. But you never know it from watching most of the news. There is an effective media blackout on Joe Biden's immigration policies and on their downstream effects on America. There are too many strangers pouring in at once, and as a result, the country is becoming chaotic. Here's a rare television news piece on what happened when officials in New York decided to house some of Joe Biden's illegal aliens in a local hotel. An employee there says that migrants have made an absolute mess of the place. You're standing in front of it. Is that true? Yeah, well, what we're hearing from that employee is that the hotel is completely overrun. He says, you know, of course, some people just looking for that better life. But as a result, the hotel is a mess and he fears for his safety. We don't have any guests anymore. They they sold the entire hotel from the fourth floor to the 28th floor. It's all migrants. Mm-hmm. So we got people who are uh, getting drunk, using marijuana. Uh, they are punching and beating their wives or their girlfriends. Um, we have teenagers running around wild around the hotel, uh, opening the fire exit doors and doing what teenagers do in, in the stairways, and it's a mess. It's a mess, he said. Of course it is. The whole country is a mess because Joe Biden has ignored immigration laws passed by the Congress. That is a crime, and it has killed huge numbers of Americans, hundreds of thousands dead from narcotics. Fentanyl has changed the entire game here in San Francisco. You can't buy heroin out here anymore. Nobody sells heroin and nobody uses heroin. Everybody has transitioned over to fentanyl. The fentanyl is the most dangerous drug to ever hit the streets of the United States in history. Fentanyl has killed more than 70,000 Americans in 12 months. Here in San Francisco, it's the dominant drug. It's responsible for three-quarters of drug overdoses, brazen drug dealing and rampant drug use. In the shadow of City Hall, the same City Hall residents say actively enable the fentanyl crisis. All of it, every gram, came over an open border. So what's notable as a political matter is that every one of these disasters, the fentanyl epidemic, the chaos and crime in our cities, the invasion underway through Texas, Arizona, and California, all of those deeply concern Americans. We're not guessing at that. Polls show it very clearly. By contrast, how many voters do you think are lying awake right now worrying that public officials might violate some obscure federal classification law? None. Not a single person. No one outside Washington cares or even understands the issue. And yet it is classified. Right. From a masculine perspective, right. Massive invasion, right. Massive risk of World War Three, massive risk, increased risk of you know, a nuclear war. 
massive crime wave, these would be the biggest problems in our society. But in our feminized HR society, the biggest problem is uh, these documents weren't filed correctly. Classified documents, not our open borders, that the Justice Department is punishing Joe Biden for. Why is that? What's going on here? Well, it's simple. Washington is protecting itself. Joe Biden alone is responsible for this crime. He alone took home classified documents. He didn't have help in doing that. But allowing the country to be invaded, that's not something you can do by yourself. So if Biden were to be taken down for opening the southern border, a lot of other people would go with him. He had a lot of accomplices. Permanent Washington doesn't want that. And ultimately, and here's the point, permanent Washington is in charge. It's not the democracy you imagine. We're seeing that now. So if you want to understand, if you really want to understand how the American government actually works at the highest levels, and if you want to know why they don't teach history anymore, one thing you should know is that the most popular president in American history was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Yet somehow, without a single vote being cast by a single American voter, Richard Nixon was kicked out of office and replaced by the only unelected president in American history. So we went from the most popular president to a president nobody voted for. Wait a minute, you may ask. Why didn't I know that? Wasn't Richard Nixon a criminal? Wasn't he despised by all decent people? <laughs> no, he wasn't. In fact, if any president could claim to be the people's choice, it was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was reelected in 1972 by the largest margin of the popular vote ever recorded before or since. Nixon got 17 million more votes than his opponent. Less than two years later, he was gone. He was forced to resign. And in his place, an obedient servant of the federal agencies called Gerald Ford took over the White House. How did that happen? Well, it's a long story, but here are the highlights, and they tell you a lot. Richard Nixon believed that elements in the federal bureaucracy were working to undermine the American system of government and had been doing that for a long time. He often said that. He was absolutely right. On June 23, 1972, Nixon met with the then CIA director, Richard Helms, at the White House. During the conversation, which thankfully was tape recorded, Nixon suggested he knew, quote, who shot John, meaning President John F. Kennedy. Nixon further implied that the CIA was directly involved in Kennedy's assassination, which we now know it was. Helms' telling response? Total silence. But for Nixon, it didn't matter because it was already over. Four days before, on June 19th, the Washington Post had published the first of many stories about a break-in at the Watergate office building. Unbeknownst to Nixon and unreported by the Washington Post, four of the five burglars worked for the CIA. The first of many dishonest Watergate stories was written by a 29-year-old Metro reporter called Bob Woodward. Who exactly was Bob Woodward? Well, he wasn't a journalist. Bob Woodward had no background whatsoever in the news business. Instead, Bob Woodward came directly from the classified areas of the federal government. Shortly before Watergate, Woodward was a naval officer at the Pentagon. He had a top-secret clearance. He worked regularly with the intel agencies. At times, Woodward was even detailed to the Nixon White House, where he interacted with Richard Nixon's top aides. Soon after leaving the Navy, for reasons that have never been clear, Woodward was hired by the most powerful news outlet in Washington and assigned the biggest story in the country. And just to make it crystal clear what was actually happening, Woodward's main source for his Watergate series was the deputy director of the FBI, Mark Felt. And Mark Felt ran, and we're not making this up, the FBI's COINTELPRO program, which was designed to secretly discredit political actors the federal agencies wanted to destroy. 
people like Richard Nixon. And at the same time, those same agencies were also working to take down Nixon's elected vice president, Spiro Agnew. In the fall of 1973, Agnew was indicted for tax evasion and forced to resign. His replacement was a colorless congressman from Grand Rapids called Gerald Ford. What was Ford's qualification for the job? Well, he had served on the Warren Commission, which absolved the CIA of responsibility for President Kennedy's murder. Nixon was strong-armed into accepting Gerald Ford by Democrats in Congress. Quote, we gave Nixon no choice but Ford, Speaker of the House Carl Albert later boasted. Eight months later, Gerald Ford of the Warren Commission was the president of the United States. See how that works? So those are the facts. Not speculation, all of that actually happened. None of it's secret. Most of it actually is on Wikipedia. But no mainstream news organization has ever told that story. It's so obvious yet it's intentionally ignored. And as a result, permanent Washington remains in charge of our political system. Unelected lifers in the federal agencies make the biggest decisions in American government and crush anyone who tries to rein them in. And in the process, our democracy becomes a joke. Now, you may have noticed that the very first person in the Trump administration the agencies went after was General Michael Flynn. Why Flynn? because Mike Flynn was a career Army intel officer who ran the Defense Intelligence Agency. In other words, Mike Flynn knew exactly how the system worked, and as a result, he was capable of fighting back. Four days after Donald Trump's inauguration, the FBI lured Mike Flynn into a meeting without his lawyer, concocted a series of fake crimes, and forced him to resign. So that's how things actually work in Washington. Let's stop lying about it. Joe Biden, meanwhile, whooped like a hyena when the Justice Department destroyed Mike Flynn. So there is, we have to say, a certain perverse justice in watching something very similar happen to Joe Biden himself six years later. Joe Biden does not deserve our sympathy. He's being shafted, but don't weep for him. And yet the rest of us do deserve a better system, an actual democracy. When people nobody voted for run everything, you are not living in a free country. Okay, a lot of powerful arguments there by Tucker, but he destroys them by saying, oh, we know that the CIA killed John F. Kennedy. We know no such thing. All, you know, logic and evidence points against that. Aside from that, I thought it was very powerful commentary. So we we were increasingly moving from a masculine society to a more feminized society where feminine wiles right, whether executed by, by men or women, you know, pulling strings, increasingly getting things done, as opposed to the more male confrontational route where you, you call someone out directly. Right. Uh, I was listening to an interesting po- podcast interview here on the feminization of society. This is Misha Saul in Sydney interviewing Richard Hanania. So Richard apparently is of Palestinian background, speaks some Arabic. And he grew up on the south side of Chicago in working class, lower middle class, uh, white South Chicago. 
they just have this idea of the Civil Rights Act. It's, uh, you know, this, there used to be racism. They still think there is racism, but there used to be official state-sanctioned racism, uh, Jim Crow. Uh, private businesses would discriminate against blacks or women to a lesser extent, um, or to you know, maybe the same extent in some people's minds. And then you pass this law, the Civil Rights Act, and then, you know, things uh, got better. You know, not perfect yet. Still going. And a lot of conservatives, I mean, like like Republican politicians, like the most, maybe the most, uh, those who are doing the most superficial kind of analysis, don't have much of a different story than that. Um, they just think that, you know, whatever, now the wokeness has come and it's completely something different. And, you know, that's a problem. And actually, you know, they'll throw in, oh, but by the way, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, those opposed to the Civil Rights Act were, uh, were Democrats, by the way, which, which you know, they, they try to claim the mantle of the Civil Rights Movement, for the, which, is, which is nonsense, because a lot of those people left and became Republicans specifically over that issue. And a lot of their voters specifically <laughs> left the, the party. So it's really a nonsense sort of narrative that they try to th- throw back at them. Uh, and so, you know, it, it says you can't, you know, discriminate in, in uh, government and you can't discriminate in private business. And most people at the time thought that that basically meant, you know, what it said, like you can't have like a sign that says no black people. Um, even the gender thing was, uh, you know, they, they say it was added as a joke, actually. So somebody was trying to kill the bill. They didn't want the racial equality parts. They said, it would be so absurd. <laughs> Okay, I've never heard this before. So it was the whole gender thing added to try to kill the bill. For a society where you didn't discriminate against sex, and so they put sex in there um, and hoping to kill the bill, and then it actually, you know, it actually ended up passing. I'm not 100 sure. I, I was told this by a law professor at the University of Chicago, so it's not like I did. It's not like I read it on Twitter somewhere. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible. I haven't looked into it. American politics is basically a rerun of the producers. Like, you know, there's hilarious accidents that just keep escalating forever. Right. It's and so. I mean, it was so. It wasn't very long after that. So what does not discriminating mean? So it wasn't very long after that that they started. That, you know, the phrase affirmative action comes along, and it comes along in a series of executive orders. They say uh, uh, government contractors first. Uh, that was uh, under. Uh, Kennedy and then LBJ in the uh, 1960s, and then under, under Nixon for the entire federal government. Um, and what this basically said was you would take affirmative action. You had to, you as a government contractor, the government itself would have to start keeping racial statistics and, and gender statistics and make sure there weren't any disparities between groups. Um, and so you also had these other uh, development of these other uh, sort of legal doctrines derived from the Civil, uh, from the Civil Rights Act, which include a hostile work environment, right? So, the- so this is, comes from a terrific Substack essay by Richard Hananya, Woke Institutions. That's just civil rights law. Why conservatives won't and can't fight for influence, what to do about it. So follow up to his post, why is everything liberal in 2016, the turning point? Right, so then you get sexual harassment law, uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of people who raise questions about free speech, right? If I think men and women are different, and I'm in a private business, and I want to say that, right? That that is of questionable legality. You know, mainstream conservative views on things. You, you know, these, and so you know the and you know they went after a lot of companies for this. I mean, there were some major uh, corporations. Uh, uh, I think Mitsubishi was one of them. They ended up paying a lot of money to the government that made an example out of certain places. Um, and so basically, and you also uh, another uh, doctrine uh, which was invented, you know, by a combination of the courts and the uh, you know executive uh, agencies is um, disparate impact. So if you give a standardized test, the Griggs uh, the uh, uh, Griggs versus Duke Power Company. This was a uh, this was a case early in the, in the, after the Civil Rights Act, and it basically said if you give an IQ test um, and it has a disparate impact between groups, you can still use it. You know, it's a little complicated; it has to be like you know related to the work, but it, it becomes harder. Everything you do that has a racial disparate impact, and by the way, everything in the world has a racial disparate impact. You find anything in the world that does it, I get all be surprised. There's a, they can potentially come at, come after you for. Uh, That's such an important issue. Why does everything in the world have a racially disparate impact? Right, because different peoples have different gifts. Right. Everything in the world has a racially disparate and sexually disparate impact. Women have many gifts that men don't have. Different groups have different gifts. Right. Everything has racially disparate outcomes. And yet that's essentially being ruled illegal. Uh, either through uh, the government directly uh, coming after you through uh, or through people suing you. Uh, and so what happened? Uh, so what happened in the, um, you know, starting in the 1960s is you see this growth of this uh, human right, uh, human resources industry. And so if you just look at the, you know, the chart of the number of human resources workers in the U.S., they're going through, you know, now if you would have just said quotas, you have to hire this many blacks and this many women and whatever, that would have been simple. You wouldn't have needed a full-time bureaucracy to do that. You could, anyone can do that, right? Uh, the fact that it was vague and, you know, there were potentially substantial penalties sort of put business on edge and you needed a full-time bureaucratic class to interpret the laws and what was going on. And so the DEI industry, diversity, equity, and is derived off of the human resource, the rise of human resources. Uh, so 
you know, people, you know, the, the way that people see woke institutions today, it's just sort of the idea, well, you know, they're just deciding to be woke. There's just this class of people and they're always deciding to take the left wing issue on anything related to race and gender. Um, and, you know, some of that is obviously right. Um, but it's also, you're, you're ignoring that basically. So what if you are ordered, you, you teach school, you're ordered to teach about you know, the legacy of Martin Luther King, right? I mean, Martin Luther King helped unleash massive amounts of violent crime that destroyed America as we know it. And, and you have to praise someone who was the smiling, eloquent public face of a massive destruction of society, right? And uh, and what if you, you have to teach about it at your school or at your synagogue or at your church, right? That's your job assignment. Legally, you're only allowed to be on one side of the culture culture wars. Um, you're not you're not really you know you're not really allowed to say if you're a you know if you're a government contractor, you can't say I don't want to count my employees by race. I don't want to count my employees by gender. I don't want to I don't want to take that you know I don't want to collect that data. I don't want to take you know affirmative action that those words are in the executive. Yeah, what if you don't want to count your employees by race? You don't you don't have that ability, right? You have to essentially conform with the law, which is in many places woke. Order, uh, to help black people or help women out. You know, I, I believe in color black policy. Mainstream conservative views, right? Conservatives, you know, believe this stuff. It's not legal. It's not legal. Conservatism is illegal, right? Mm-hmm. For for a lot of institutions, not everything, not everything is covered, right? But huge portions, the federal government, uh, you know, government contractors, uh, you know, uh, government contractors, they're subcontractors. I mean, it covers a huge portion. And then of the uh, uh, huge portion of the private and public sectors. And then, you know, it filters down, you know, you have these big corporations and, you know, other people sort of follow them. Um, and you have these norms that, you know, can apply to everybody. So courts will look at best practices. Oh, you know, discrimination is wrong. What are the, you know, what are the, uh, uh, what is the best practices in the industry? What are people doing to fight discrimination? And then if, you know, if that's Robin D'Angelo at one point in time, uh, you know, you start to fear if you don't have Robin D'Angelo coming, you know, giving you speeches, you know, you might be in trouble, not specifically Robin D'Angelo, but you get. Right. So businesses are incentivized to push gender sensitivity training, sexual harassment uh, training, diversity training to reduce their chances of being sued. It's not so much that businesses are just inherently woke. They want to reduce their legal liabilities. But you get the idea. I mean, you have these intellectual fads that come and go, and everyone's sort of jumping on the same train because it, it's it's sort of necessary. Uh, there's a book. Uh, there's a book that argue, uh, argues this: uh, inventing equal opportunity. And it's not just it, it argues this. Uh, and there's other work by a guy named Frank Dobbin at Harvard. It's not just the uh, civil rights law, but a lot of laws in the U.S. are like this, where they're sort of vague, like a uh, standards like safety standards, um, uh, uh, environmental uh, standards, where you'll basically you'll write a law. It's sort of vague. You don't know exactly what it says. The government really doesn't enforce it. It sort of leaves enforcement to the uh, uh, or does enforce it uh, through uh, executive branch agencies, which make rules up as they go along, or through the courts uh, or through sort of civil society bringing lawsuits and then the bureaucracy, you know, grows. Uh, so America sort of, it's, it's a, uh, it's a state where uh, the government doesn't directly do stuff like a lot. Of- All right. Uh, Scott McConnell, editor, former editor of American conservative, co-founder of the American conservative. And he notes that the Jersey of the national hockey league player who wouldn't kneel before the LGBTQ flag has become a bestseller. Well, that's good news. Like a lot of places, it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just dictate to corporations, but it builds this sort of legal uh, bureaucratic environment uh, where things have to go in a certain direction. And that's basically what wokeness is. I mean, it's not just a cultural thing. That's the, that's what's important to understand. I mean, we could kind of spend the, the entire kind of conversation on this. I know you kind of discussed it also, and I encourage people to go and read your, your Substack where you posted this. By the way, I, I was I was, I was reading um, the, the the conquering of, of, of Mexico um, recently and the, the kind of tribes that were conquered. Something like 25% of their time was dedicated to kind of religious uh, ritual, which had kind of gone defunct in its original uh, purpose. And it kind of built up the scroticism in the society. And I've been reflecting on, on your uh, on your kind of view that there's this massive bureaucratization of these kind of semi um, you know, religious incantations towards you know discrimination. Okay, this is a good little story coming out of Canada, believe it or not. 
Philadelphia Flyers say they support the gay community. And the NHL team also says it supports the right of its players to choose their own causes. The organization has faced a number of questions after one player sat out a pregame warm-up with a Rainbow Pride theme. Matt Cullen of CBC Sports has the details. Today, the talk around the NHL has been controversy and it has been backlash. This is because of an event that happened last night just prior to a game between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Anaheim Ducks. The controversy is the decision surrounding Flyers defenseman Ivan Provenov. He refused to take the warm-up with the team on Pride Night while the team was wearing these jerseys, the Pride-themed jerseys, and also using pride rainbow colored tape on their sticks now what was noticeable is that the 26 year old joined the team on the ice for the game after the warm-up had concluded but the regular jerseys had then been put back on Provorov is from Russia and cited the Russian Orthodox religion for his absence. Let's take a listen to his brief post-game comments and then followed by the comments of the head coach John Tortorella. I respect everybody and I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. With Provy, uh, uh, he, he's being true to himself and to his religion. This has to do with his belief in his religion. And it's one thing I respect about Provy. He's always true to himself. Uh, and so that's, that's where we're at with that. So, Matt, what other sort of reaction are you hearing from the team and also the league? Well, there has been no shortage of reaction today, Hannah. In particular, there's been division around the NHL about how the team handled this and how the league handled it. Oh, the Flyers beat the Anaheim Ducks 5-2 to two last night, but it's what happened before the game that you mentioned that has a lot of people talking today. Defenseman Ivan Provorov refused to wear a jersey like this one for warm-ups last night. Flyers were participating in their annual Pride Night, where the team wears rainbow in support of the LGBTQ community. This morning, some are saying while Provorov had the right not to wear the jersey, they believe he should have been benched for the rest of the game, too. Provorov cited his Russian Orthodox beliefs when asked why he would not show his support for the gay community. Here's what head coach John Tortorella had to say. He, he's being true to himself and to his religion. This has to do with his belief in his religion. And it's one thing I respect about Provy. He's always true to himself. Uh, and so that's... Yeah, good for him for standing up against this uh, agenda. Right? That's, that's a masculine thing to do discrimination and, and kind of requirements dri- driven by law and it kind of reminded me of that like how much of the how much of, the, of society and, and of, of the economy is now dedicated to kind of monitoring and enforcing these um kind of semi-legal semi kind of cultural um, norms which are which i kind of found uh initially parallel but anyway let's get back to the kind of um feminization issue so i think this is a discussion that can kind of easily devolve into like two cranks kind of sounding uh conspiratorial and uh, and bitter so actually you know the the, the one place outside so, Glenn Bentley says, 40, remind me again why sports reporters are the sycophantic liberals because uh, more than any other group, they're continually forced to face the reality of group differences and, and that natural painful reality, the, the denial of you know, the, the reigning liberal left worldview that uh, all, all group differences are the, the creation of society is so painful that uh, they, they bend over backwards to, you know, to the, the most ridiculous you know, left-wing shibboleths. Uh, here's uh, Richard Hernania speaking with 
Kind of a, an observation thing. But if you kind of look up, go to Marginal Revolution and kind of search feminization, you notice that it does crop up, you know, quite periodically. And, and, and um, so, for example, um, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, Tyler Cannon recently said was, and I'll quote, one thing the contemporary world definitely has not come to terms with is how much a highly feminized culture will be rather strongly enforcing new forms of discrimination, albeit cloaked under different and rhetorically emancipatory principles um and then um uh you know i think uh, last year I mean, before that was quite um, a performance you know, from that sportscaster yes, wow i think sometimes sports media they have politics envy right there's like a little hook and they're like let's really preen here mm-hmm. and they went all in on this story i should be the one offended right i'm yes. a gay hockey fan yes and i am <laughs> not offended because what's more offensive to me actually is this idea that people should be coerced into supporting me. That's empty. Yes. If you don't want to do it, then you shouldn't have to do it. And if you're being mandated to do it, then it's Yeah. Right? So if you want to... If you want to make a gesture or a statement out of what you actually believe and support our community, our community, Greg, you're the ally. Yeah. But... um. <laughs> If you want to do that because you believe it, go for it. Put on, as you always do before the show, your Gutfeld rainbow sweater mm-hmm. backstage. That's great. But this enforced celebration or else completely takes the whole purpose out of it, which should be genuine support, not something like at the barrel of a proverbial gun. Exactly. I, cat, don't even like wearing things that I like. Like causes, I, like when Fox tells people, oh, it's so-and-so day, everybody heart has to wear. disease day, everybody has to wear red. Yeah, and I get so pissed I, I off, want... and I'm against heart disease. The, I, I am too. <laughs> it's crazy that we have that in common. I know. <laughs> but you hate gay people, so this is about this. <laughs> Don't make him proud of himself for that. <laughs> Every night is Pride Night with Greg. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't understand what they're saying they would rather have this guy do is not, they're not asking, he's not going to support it. So pretend to support it and sort of use the cause for his own benefit. Ex- yes. And that's not better. Yeah. That's worse. It is. It's always better, I think, when you force people to do things, you're not, it's always better to have more information about how people really feel than less information mm-hmm. all the time. Excellent point, Tyrus. What would you do? I wouldn't wear it. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't wear a Black Lives Matter shirt either. Mm-hmm. So, and for the reasons because they're, they've become political. Mm-hmm. And one of my closest friends uh, who makes my gear for the NWA, and I spend most of my time complaining when I'm there, um, he happens to be gay, one of my closest friends. And when... They did. We did a thing where they made the NWA rainbows and support and stuff. And he said, hey, Tyrus, would you get me a shirt? So I went and I got him that shirt. Right. And I brought it back and he cussed me out. He said, I wanted a Tyrus shirt. Ah. Uh. He says, I'm a gay man, but I'm not political. Mm-hmm. So I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, you know what? I get it because I wouldn't wear a Black Lives Matter shirt because that what that represents, I don't agree with. So you I think you that can, shirt. Yeah, I still have it. I kept it. Oh, uh, just leave it in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Why, you want a nightgown? Yes. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like something I would wear to bed. 
Last word to you, Paul. You're a hockey fan. I am a hockey fan. Yeah, I thought I hockey. would probably be. I did. I yeah. thought I'd be the only one. You shocked me. I guess it's. Uh, I'm not a just hockey fan. No, I'm a diehard Bruins fan. Are you really? Hockey's the one sport I enjoy. Well, you know, that's a clue right there. Because <laughs> I can tell you what's going on. Yeah. This is, you got to look where the coercion is coming from. And the Canadian elites, including up to the PM, the Donny Osmond, Trudeau. Yeah. They don't want this. There's too much testosterone on the ice here. This is like the largest repository of testosterone in North America, right? Outside maybe of Tyrus. So there's so I don't know. much. I got a lot of it, too. It's just Not way too much. <laughs> So they don't want that, and this is part of that whole thing. They hired the uh, equity and inclusion director and all that, and they want to use this to make these kinds of statements. What they really need to just do is just let it go. What will happen is at some point a, a couple of players will come out. It'll be there. The real truth of the matter is nobody cares. Score the goals. Yes. That's what we want. Have a couple exactly. of fights. That's it. They get two complaints, somebody gets some attention on TV, and suddenly it's trending in Canada. Yeah, and let's see him say that in the Flyers locker room, by yeah. the way, that guy that was right. But also trends in Canada, maple syrup. <laughs> That's trending. Also, moose. Hey, just check it out, moose, it's trending. I'll go. Coming up, would it come? Okay, so we've got a uh, little bit more here from Richard Hanania. Speaking with Misha Saw. The trend number one, noting that basically all the top 10 selling books had female protagonists and were seven were authored by, 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 by women. And I think you can kind of go through different professions, uh, educational institutions, other institutions, um, probably over the last you know, 50 years. And I guess it's not surprising since the kind of increased participation of women in the workforce and the democratic process, you kind of expect um, you know, our culture and our institutions to change. But I guess this is what I wanted to kind of spend today talking about. When you kind of took the piss out of D'Angelo and just said, you know, this is just estrogen and, and, and mental illness. Uh- <laughs> estrogen and mental illness. Okay, so Scott McConnell is tweeting, Tucker's rap talking about tonight's show is much further out than anything he said before. I think there is a deep state, but I think usually elected officials are more or less in charge. I don't think CIA was responsible for killing JFK, but don't entirely rule it out. General conspiracy theories are vulnerable. How many people need to be involved in the conspiracy? I think the available reported historical record eventually gets to the right story. But I do agree that Joe Biden has outlived his usefulness to the people who turned to him after Bernie Sanders' victory. So, yeah, this was... This was a historic uh, Tucker Carlson rant tonight. And I think he's completely wrong about the CIA being responsible for JFK. I think he's completely right about the rest of his points. So everyone's a mixed bag. Right? Just because someone's wrong about something doesn't mean that you dismiss everything that they say. Um, let's talk about you know, what, what has happened in, in, in our culture. What does feminization mean? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think what it means, I mean, a lot, it's a broad, it's a broad topic, obviously, but I think what, I think what Cohen is referring to, I mean, you have the, you know, there's sort of, you have, so you have obviously men and women and men and women deal with uh, conflict and challenges in, in different ways. Um, and we as a society, I think are leaning more towards doing things in the uh, feminized way rather than in a more masculine way. So, you know, Robin D'Angelo, I think is just a great example of this. I mean, I don't think, you know, the, uh, so I mentioned the uh, human resources industry. I also have a chart in my uh, Substack which shows the uh, changing gender demographics over time. So it's something like 60, 70% female, right? And so, you know, this idea that you sort of, you have problems with people 
people. And then you talk to them about it. And you talk to them not for, say, an instrumental purpose to say, you know, we're going to work something out. But the talking is sort of the reward in itself. Um, because, you know, you need something. You need to, you need to reestablish the relationship. You know, you need to uh, uh, feel heard, feel validated. Um, this is, you know, this is a very feminine thing. So you have these, uh, uh, you know, you, you have like these protesters at universities. And it's funny because like you look at like identity politics in the past, like anti-colonization, right, or something. And it's like, we just want to get, you know, the occupiers out of our country. You know, we want to fight them. You know, we're going to have our own, you know, society. It's sort of like this masculine idea. And you have these sort of identity politics where it's just like hire my diversity counselors and like have them talk to the people who are mean to us for, forever, right? I mean, it's a very strange thing compared to say what identity <laughs> politics was, you know, 30, 40, you know, 50 years ago, um, you know, which you could just say is sort of kind of a nationalism, right? It's the tribalism us versus them that's, that's there in every society. But it, it sort of morphed into something different. And so, so you, you know, just the angelo, the human resources, the rise of human resources, you know, even things like, um, you know, I think also like things like how we understand cost benefit analysis. I think safetyism is, you know, more of a female way of looking at things. You know, you and uh, actually Brian Kaplan in his book, The Myth of the Rational Voters, has a few predictors of thinking more like an economist, and one of them is being male rather than rather than female. So there's, you know, there's good data on this. Um, even like things like, uh, you know, something I noticed since I was a kid. So this is going to sound sort of stupid, but there was a, you know, you know, the film Space Jam, right? Yeah. So there was Loved a female it. bunny. There was a female rabbit uh, who was in the when the movie was out in the 1990s. The, the she she was curvaceous and attractive. Okay, and the, so for 20 when they made the movie again, I think I think this year 2021, they had to like make her flat chested and you know and and just make her you know look like an actual basketball player. And you sort of wonder like okay like you know like why like what what is like why is that necessary right? Yeah, there's curvaceous women out there like you know they're just as much women as as anyone else. So why do they deserve less representation? While you know skinny women who are you know who have the bodies of basketball players, why do they deserve more you know representation? And I think that there's just this rise of this idea that sort of male sexuality is something how wrong because it appeals to men you know it's somehow a bad thing or it's wrong or it's like what, what men would rather see it has to be more representative of you know i guess all women um or you know what what, what women think so like this idea that like attraction romance should not be based on physical attractiveness i think that is just that is just that's just male sexuality that's all it is and this idea that it's somehow wrong or dirty or something we can't talk about or uh, something that you know is quote-unquote sexist you know I don't, it's hard to even see the connection there uh so you know i think there's just like the way of dealing with conflicts the way of thinking about policy uh just the way like normative ideas about sexual attraction and how it should work you know i think we're going in a female direction on all those fronts and, and that's been happening for, for yeah there's uh, some great points there by richard hananya okay Matt Walsh says, not a single person on earth sincerely believes that this person's woman. Well, I 100% believe that this person. She was informed she was not. 28 year old Bridget Klein Simpson has identified as a woman for years and she wants to get into better shape, so she went to the Body Works Gym for Women in Parksville for a membership. Klein Simpson says she was initially welcomed, but after one workout, she was informed she was not allowed at the women's only gym saying, sorry, we made a mistake. You're not actually allowed to be here, but you're more than welcome to use the co-ed facility. And uh, I kind of just hung up because uh, I was, I mean, I was extreme, extre- devastated. I mean, there's really no other word for it. 28-year-old Bridget. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. I mean, that's obviously a woman. Why would anyone doubt that? Okay, uh, CNN is is thinking of starting a comedy show weekday evenings. All right, good people, good people, good people. I wish good people were here. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Turns out, thanks to the smashing success of this show, which happened because of our awesome fans and my razor wit and my washboard abs, other networks now want to hit comedy show of their own. According to the news site Semaphore, CNN is reportedly considering hiring a comedian to host one of its primetime shows. Makes sense. The network is still a joke. (laughs) That's mean. Apparently, some floated names that included Bill Maher, Trevor Noah, Arsenio Hall, and Jon Stewart. What? No Elaine Boozler? (laughs) 
<laughs> Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Elaine Boozler. Anyway, but if they really want comedy, they should relaunch CNN Plus. <laughs> oh. That debacle made me laugh far more than the dead crow stapled to Chris Wallace's scalp. But isn't that the point, really? CNN was already funny, and they went ahead and they ruined it. I'm talking, of course, about the golden age of comedy. Chris Cuomo, Don Lemon, Brian Stelter. (laughs) Or as they're known in the business, the Three Stooges. Those were the days, right? Now everything's ruined. Chris lost his gig after trying to help his brother Andrew fend off a sexual harassment scandal, which is like having Alec Baldwin teach you gun safety. (laughs) Hey... Kill the lady. And, and Lemon lost his primetime gig becomes, because he comes off as real as this guy's breasts. <laughs> and no offense to that guy and his giant fake <laughs> He is a global treasure. Stelter, sadly for us, took time off to spend more time with his hoagies. Okay. <laughs> Did you know he gave blood last week? That's how they make Alfredo sauce. <laughs> so disgusting. <laughs> I know, it's gross. But how could CNN forget these guys were a riot when they were together? Remember this classic? If you watch a certain state TV and you listen to conservative media, you would think that, you know, entire cities are just, you know, in, in brawled in fights and fires and whatever. We went out and had a great dinner in New York City tonight. <laughs> The only thing that could have made that funnier is him bursting into flames after he said it. (laughs) I'll never get tired of that. And who can forget this? Looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. For president. (laughs) I heard dentists use this clip because it's cheaper than laughing gas. Why they can't that guy's show instead of promoting him is bonkers. But the thing is, regardless of our show's amazing success, if CNN wants to chase comedy, they should start by first being real. I know, that's like asking Spielberg to do a sequel to Schindler's List using Alvin and the Chipmunks. Don't steal that idea. But that's because comedy follows honesty. And if you can't be truthful, good luck being funny. Take the late, great Norm MacDonald. After O.J. Simpson's acquittal in 95, he said, well, it's, official, it's finally official. Murder is legal in the state of California. The audience roared because they knew it was true, but they also laughed because Norm was saying something he got the feeling he wasn't supposed to say. Rumors swirled that some execs at NBC didn't want him doing OJ jokes. He was willing to break the rules to tell the truth. So how can a network do that while calling moms pregnant people? In order to be effective at comedy, you got to rely on truth, not ideology. CNN is sort of trans in that way, meaning they identify as truthful. (laughs) But they still never really made the cut. (laughs) (laughs) Remember what we refer to as CNN's Easter when Chris Cuomo rose from the dead from his basement (laughs) after being quarantined with COVID just a week after fighting a cyclist? Do you remember this? During 2020, a reporter does a hit outside a burning building while the on-screen caption reads, mostly peaceful protests. (laughs) Now, that's dishonesty, but it's hilarious, unintentionally. We could be here all night reciting examples from CNN's years-long perpetuation of the Russian myth to Nick Sandman, Jussie Smollett, to their 12-headed panels of gibbering cockatoos all trying to out-hysteria each other. Remember when every day was worse than Watergate? 
This is worse than Watergate. Is worse than Watergate. This in some ways is worse than Watergate. His face is worse than Watergate. Yeah. But anyway, so before CNN entertains any fantasies about comedy, first you've got to tackle the truth. Take it from your humble host. Each night we start from the truth, then go from there. Where we go each night, who the hell knows? Sometimes it's hilarious. Other times it's not. But remember that with comedy, the outcome is not predetermined. It's why woke comedy can't be funny. Woke comics are nothing more than smirking deliverers of bitter lectures. And it's a tell that they require you to agree rather than laugh. And that's because there's no equity in laughter. You either laugh or you don't. Try to establish a quota and you'll be the joke. Let's welcome tonight's guest. Okay, I find Greg Gutfeld consistently funny. I thought there were a lot of uh, sharp points in that that monologue. It's a lot harder to be funny when you feel the presence of the HR ladies, right? When you internalize, you know, the HR ladies' outlook, right? A lot more difficult to be funny in those circumstances. Here's Misha saw talking with Richard Hanina. For, for a long time. But I think there are examples where it's kind of easy to be uh, conspiratorial. And actually, there's actually quite a clear mechanism for it. I think a nice example of this is the whole Victoria's Secrets thing, where, um, you know, historically, um, it's probably been very much, um, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, male attractiveness or what's attractiveness to, to what's attractive to kind of men and kind of very obviously so. And kind of um, in the same way, kind of um, off-putting, um, you know, or threatening to, 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 to women. And I think, you know, that's obviously changed meaningfully to whatever they're doing now. But that's, you know, you, you you can tell quite a, prosa- you know, a non-cultural story around that, a prosaic story around, um, you know, uh, the times have changed in terms of what the consumer wants and, and what the consumer is after. And, um, and they just simply kind of went defunct. And so they had to kind of uh, keep up with the change and, and, you know, more, um, you know, and women are, you know, have more powerful spending power. And, you know, and so that's, that's a story around consumer demographic changes. Um, and, and they just wanted something different. And that's like pretty innocuous. Is that part of what we're talking about? Or how do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the consumer preferences and the changes are sort of what we're trying to explain, right? I, yeah. you know, I don't think it's like now, you know, you'll see like Sports Illustrated. You know, what's happening with like Sports Illustrated and uh, you know, these other things? I mean, they're just, I think they just lost out to internet, internet porn. I mean, they just had to do something else. So they're just, they're, you know, <laughs> that's, they were, that was their function, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, they're, they're just, you know, they can't compete anymore. So now they're just latching out to whatever, you know, social cause they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think the preferences are what we're trying to explain because like, you know, women, I mean, like the idea that like women, you know, it's not like women don't naturally like to identify with pretty women, right? It's like, you know, the Disney princesses, you know, traditionally they weren't appealing to men, right? They were appealing to little girls who wanted to be a princess, who wanted to be, you know, pretty and they wanted to have a prince charming. You know, they, it wasn't like they made, you know, 20 years ago they had, if, you know, the women had more uh, or the little girls had more, um, you know, spending power through their parents, they would have all been. Okay, let's talk here about the real victims. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise around the world, including in the United States. And our next guest is unfortunately no stranger to this phenomenon. Rabbi Shmuley Botech, an international best-selling author, relationship expert, and founder of World Values Network, known as America's Rabbi, has experienced two anti-Semitic hate crimes in Miami just this week. And joining us now to discuss his experiences is Rabbi Shmuley Botech. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Think about the irony. I'm currently in Milan, Italy. You can see the beautiful artwork behind me that is so characteristic of Italy. And I just met an American Jewish tourist who told me that the synagogue in Milan has tanks outside with soldiers holding machine guns. And he said, wow, that's what Europe is like. I said, you're kidding me, right? That's what New York is today like. That's what Miami is like today. It's a very, very scary reality. I am shocked that it is... Well, I'm, 
I grew up in Miami, Florida, Dade County, Florida. One out of three people is Jewish. It's the second largest Jewish community in the United States. More than a million Jews live in Dade County. And the hotel where this took place, I one night a guy came and started screaming at me about my yarmulke and tried to rip it off. And then the next night, as you see, these two men who self-identified as Arabs. And I want to be clear that Muslims and Arabs are my brothers and sisters, but not haters like these. These guys came over, and if you could see the hostility in their eyes, the hatred in their eyes, if you could see the language, the foul language, the absolute contempt, the unbridled vitriol that they feel towards Jews. And this is in the heart of Miami, where I was raised, which is known as one of the most Jewish cities you know, in, in the world. This is truly shocking. And it's happening everywhere. So like I said, I'm in Europe currently, where Jews have gotten accustomed to anti-Semitic hate crimes as a matter of course, but now the United States is becoming as dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious about the incident in Miami that you faced this week. Do you know if, if these men were held accountable? Were they questioned by police? Did, did you follow up on this? I absolutely followed up. Uh, the reason why I'm... Wait, uh, cussing someone out isn't, isn't a crime. And this idea that Jews are in extreme peril, I mean, Jews have never been safer than they are today in, in the United States, in Australia. Not identifying the uh, venue where this took place be is because I don't believe in shaming venues that take anti-Semitism seriously. As soon as I contacted the chief executives, the highest executives uh, of this corporation, they immediately began to question their security. Their security handled it terribly. Their security came over to me and said, there's two sides to every story. Um, we need to hear their side. I said, what are you talking about? Just look at the optics. You have two men in my face. I'm telling them to get away from me. They won't leave. I'm telling, and, and one of them looks like he's about to punch me in the face. And I'm telling him that if he touches me, he's going to jail. Who is harassing whom? What do you mean there are two stories? One, and then one of the security guards even said to me that you're creating a disturbance among our hotel guests. So I was shocked. But to the credit of the executives, they said that they're going to retrain their security to understand that when you wear a yarmulke right now in hotels in Florida, you're a target. And it, it so bothered me, the equation that was done between me and the perpetrators of this, of this hate crime, as if we were both at fault for an altercation. Victims and perpetrators are totally different, th different things. The Absolutely. world is just not used to Jews who stand up for themselves. And, and I have to tell you, it bothered them that I stood my ground and I said to them, I, I'm not going anywhere. Touch me and you're going to jail. They expected me to hide my yarmulke, to walk away. And that's why Jews are becoming almost a secret society in the United States. Jews are afraid to wear mug and davids. They're afraid to wear Jewish symbols. They're afraid to wear kippot. That's why you're seeing in New York that it's Hasidic Jews who are the ones being beaten up right now, people with I mean, pay, you, people who look Jewish. You said we that, cannot hide our Jewishness. I want to ask you, because you said that you published the video in part to raise awareness of growing anti-Semitism in the United States, but also so that Jews learn never to, to go underground and, and hide their Jewish identity. I mean, you feel that Jews in the United States now are starting to really hide their Jewish identities out of fear? Absolutely. Are you kidding? In that video... Um, of these two men attacking me, you'll see that there's someone else who's wearing a hoodie. Now, that was actually an Orthodox Jewish guy who saw me under attack and came to help me. Question is, why was he wearing a hoodie? And he said to me, I'm I, I conceal my yarmulke. And so many Jews conceal their yarmulkes because they don't want to happen to them what happened to me. 
I was the rabbi at Oxford University for 11 years. I saw Jewish students starting taking off their kippot um, back in Europe in the late 80s and the 90s. Now, on American campuses, on on Ivy League campuses, places like Harvard and Stanford, Penn, um, NYU, which has 6,000 Jewish under... Okay, so it's not essential to Judaism that, that a, a Jew wear a yarmulke everywhere he goes. So it is asserting an in-group identity, which is... is you know, very likely to bring out hostility from someone else with a very strong in-group identity that is in direct competition with your identity. Which undergraduates, you barely see kippah. People are afraid to wear a kippah. You can get beaten up as a Jew wearing a kippah in Times Square in the middle of New York. So whereas once upon a time, hidden Jewishness was a phenomenon that we witnessed in Belgium, uh, in, 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 in the United Kingdom, uh, in France. Now we're seeing it in Louisiana, we're seeing it in Missouri, we're seeing it in California, we're seeing it in New York, and it's a very troubling incident. Welcome back to the Rita Panahi Show. Joining me now from New York is author, broadcaster, and relationship expert, Rabbi Shmuley Botaic. Rabbi, thank you so much for your time. Let's start with one of the best comics working today, Dave Chappelle. He's funny as well as insightful, but he has sparked outrage in some quarters with accusations that his monologue on Saturday Night Live was... uh, normalizing anti-semitism now in the opener he was referring to the Kanye West saga let's have a look and I'm interested in your take on whether this is anti-semitic or comedy before I start tonight I just wanted to read a brief statement that I prepared (laughs) I denounce anti-semitism in all its forms (laughs) and I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. I gotta tell you guys, I've probably been doing this uh, 35 years now. And early in my career, I learned that there are two words in the English language that you should never say together in sequence. And those words are the and juice. <laughs> I've never heard someone do good after they said that. Rabbi, I thought it was funny. I don't think what we saw there is glorifying anti-Semitism or normalizing it, but I'll defer to your judgment. Jews have a sense of humor. Uh, I saw it live. It was hilarious. My wife and I were cracking up. Dave Chappelle is not an (laughs) anti-Semite. Jews can take a joke. We have to always distinguish between true racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, and just humor. Now, Kanye West had every opportunity to repudiate the disgusting, vile things he said about Jews that feeds into every anti-Semitic trope that has led to so much violence against Jews. We're bloodsuckers, we're leeches, we're parasites. He just keeps on digging uh, deeper into that anti-Semitic pit. But Chappelle was kind of making fun of it, and he's being pilloried for that monologue on Saturday Night Live when America actually does need a good laugh. Let's not cry wolf, Mm. by which we would degrade real anti-Semitism. Okay, good point there by Shmuley Bateo. Here's the Instagram. Let's, uh... Ah, come on. Okay. You touch me, you go to jail. Go away from me. Go away from me. Go away from me. 
Go away from me. Go away from me. Call. Call security. Call security. Call security. Fuck you. Call security. Call security. You touch me, you go to jail. Touch me, you go to jail. What do you want to do to me? Say it. What do you want to do? Why? What do you want to do to me? Because I'm Jewish. Because I'm Jewish? You're fucking pussy, bro. Because I'm Jewish? Because she walked over to me and started screaming free Palestine because I wear a yarmulke? Because I wear a yarmulke? I was sitting here peacefully and he walked over and started screaming free Palestine. I am wearing a yarmulke, that's all. Hold on one second, one second, one second. Can you shut the fuck up? I want you to call the Miami Beach police. I want to call the police. I want to call the police. I want to call the police. Hold on. I want you to call the police. Listen, listen, listen. This is a hate crime. This is a hate crime. Listen, 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 listen. If I say, let me even conduct an investigation, that means I have to hear both sides. I was sitting here, just working on my laptop. This man over here walked over to okay, me. Okay, okay, okay. And he said to me, free Palestine. Free place. Screamed it in my ear. Free Palestine because of my yarmulke. Last night, by the way, someone tried to wreck my yarmulke off of my head. Tell me again what you said to me. Tell me again what you said to me. Tell me. Turn around and show your face. You think we Jews are afraid of you? Take your hatred and your anti-Semitism and change. Okay, Rabbi Shmueli says, two nights in a row I face anti-Semitic hate crime. Nearly came to violence in the Miami Beach Hotel. Okay, so someone who comes up to you, you're wearing a yarmulke, someone comes up to you and yells free Palestine. That's not a hate crime. That's just an expression of opinion. So these guys came up, saw Shmueli wearing a yarmulke and yelled free Palestine, right? That's just, that's just normal give and take. I don't see that as a hate crime. So Rabbi Bataeic seems to have escalated the confrontation and then they're calling him out for being a pussy for escalating the confrontation. So it seems to me like uh, the rabbi there dramatically overstated what was going on, right? Back to Richard Hanania speaking with Misha Saul. All been, you know, trans princesses, or they would have all been fat princesses. That's not what, that's not what little <laughs> girls wanted. You know, they, they wanted Barbie, right? So, hmm. so. Right. Kind of sharp. Uh, um, takeoffs in random direction. I had on the podcast recently. Um, you know, I'm single. I want to kind of get on. Um, you know, where, where did you go in Russia? Oh, St. Petersburg. Ah, cool. How's your Russian? Uh, okay, let's get towards the end of this Richard Hanania discussion. The liberals are ideologically motivated. So you you have this. Um, you know, you have you look at the sources, like which sources of uh, news and information liberals trust more, and it's usually it's mostly the written word. It's like the New York Times, uh, it's the Washington Post, right? It's these other publications. Conservatism is driven, so it's it's the it's the uh, uh, it's you know the, the base of, of driving, I think, the Democratic Party in the U.S. and driving the left is journalism and academia, right? Um, for the right, it's talk radio and TV, uh, and talk radio and TV, um, you know, is not ideological. It doesn't. It has a short attention span. Um, it, it likes to fight. You know, it likes the reality TV aspect. I think sometimes it can win. It can you know win over a majority of the public because it's 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 good at showmanship. It's good at fighting. You know, this is this is this is Trump in the, in the most uh, you know the, the, the pinnacle of, of this of what the conservative movement was. <laughs> but you, you know the, you're missing. You know, and you have these groups that are sort of uh, and so you have these groups that are sort of issue focused. So you have the gun people and you have the uh, anti-abortion people. And those people and those people actually do well. They're, they're the ones who are organized on the right and they tend to get the the kinds of bills they want passed or prevented the things they want. But so this is Richard Hanania saying that uh, conservatives primarily dominate with talk, radio, and TV. Well, TV, I guess the only conservative domination is in Fox News. So he's saying that liberalism is more a movement of the spoken word and that it is higher IQ. 
in general. Uh, I think I think conservatism is more a reaction to an ideological movement, and the liberalism is the ideological movement. It's moving in a straight direction. Look at five years, ten years ago, liberals were talking about uh, gay rights and they were talking about expanding health care and women and you know minorities and all that, and, and they're still talking about that. They're just moving more in the same direction. Ten years ago, twelve years ago, Republicans were talking about democratizing Iraq. Ten years ago, they were talking about Obamacare, which they which they forgotten about. And they don't want to you know they don't want to do anything about it anymore. Uh, you know, five years ago, they were talking about immigration. Today, they're talking about trans women in sports. There is some consistent. I mean, there is like just a reaction to the left, uh, but you don't see that sort of straight lines. I don't know where Republicans will be in five or ten years. I don't like that vax denial. That, that didn't come from anything uh, within conservatism, right? It was just a, it was just a purely tribal. It's not consistent with small government. It's not consistent with anything but just reaction. You know, becoming the party of people who don't read and the people who, who just watch TV. I think is, is more uh, is more how you get that. Uh, so yeah, I think you have to. There's a sociologically. I think when you're looking at the American left and the American right, you know, I don't know the extent to which is true in other countries. I, you know, I think it's, it's not as extreme in other countries. I think, the, for example, you know, the UK is probably the media I'm most familiar with, and there's some more balance. If you look at like the top four papers in the uh, UK, they're, they're, there's more balance between conservative and liberals, and I think their liberal papers, even in some cases, aren't as crazy as uh, the conservative papers. I was talking to Eric Kaufman about this, about whether there was as many woke institutions in the United Kingdom. He says, no, it's not. It's not the same. Uh, so we're, I think it's we're much not- worse. I, I mean, I have no depends. idea. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, because I, I talked to Kaufman about this and just from what I, what I know, it's, it's it's sort of, there's a few, you know, it depends on what you're talking about. So like, you know, the police will, you know, we don't have like the police, for example, in the US are much more regular than the police in uh, the UK. So, so great, great comment uh, by Rustin in the chat. I, I wonder if the rabbi would be equally outraged by anti-white statements. Well, given that 95% of uh, Jews in America identify as, as white, you, you would think so. Right. But it's a very good question. His agents were doing under, as you might imagine, brutal conditions. Quoting here, our agents are being assaulted and we aren't saying a word. The bus contractors and pilots are dealing with Haitians escaping or trying to overrun drivers and we stay quiet. Excuse me, Mr. Secretary, any comments to Republicans who are calling for your impeachment, sir? Good morning. They've announced an oversight hearing for the border next month. Will you cooperate, sir? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas did not answer questions from our Bill Malugin as he arrived at the annual conference of mayors in Washington on Thursday. The embattled secretary told the conference that the Biden administration will help local governments deal with the consequences of the illegal immigration surge along the southern border and that financial assistance... So is it the equivalent of saying free Palestine to someone wearing a yarmulke? Is it the equivalent uh, saying Black Lives Matter to white people? Asking for a friend. Aren't they equivalent hate statements? They're very concerning. Ashley Stromeyer is live with the latest, and actually a lot of people are surprised by these findings. Yeah, Trace, they really are. The Supreme Court is leaving us with more questions tonight, announcing the investigation into the leak of the Dobbs draft opinion came up with no leads, but word from the court that the probe is not over yet. The court says 82 people had access to either electronic or hard copies of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. 97 employees were interviewed. So the court simply not cut out to do this sort of investigation. So it's ridiculous to expect that they'd find anything. Okay, so two Arabs say to Rabbi Bataeak, Free Palestine, isn't that the equivalent of yelling Black Lives Matter? So here, we'll, we'll go back. So I try to get rid of the spam in the chat. Or maybe you guys all personnel who were asked to submit to an interview, did so, and all of them signed a sworn affidavit under penalty of perjury that they did not disclose the draft opinion to anyone who didn't work for the court. 
but many admitted they didn't stick to procedure for handling the draft, including this. Some individuals admitted to investigators that they told their spouse or partner about the draft, Dobbs' opinion. Yeah, there's no reason ever to expect that the U.S. Supreme Court was going to be capable of making this kind of investigation. All right. Uh, free Palestine. Isn't that the equivalent of this? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter? All right, Karen. Fucking white piece of shit. You little Whoa, fucking pussy ass bitch. Hateful. Oh, yeah? You want to fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight! Until black lives mean something to this country! No. No. Alright, that sounds hateful. Sounds racist. Okay, let's check in here. Oh yeah, Alec Baldwin's gonna be charged with involuntary manslaughter. But uh, let's get back to Richard Hanania here for the deeper stuff. So the police in the UK are very woke. Uh, American police are, you know, uh, middle class or, or uh, lower middle class or sometimes middle, you know, higher class. But, but, they, but they tend to be, you know, have very, very right wing views. So you'll, you'll, you'll see the police do things in the UK that's very strange in the United States. But I asked Kaufman, like, you know, in the US, like if you're in a university or if you're even you're in a corporation, they'll send you like BLM or like, uh, you know, women, you know, uh, issues, you know, things, things like this. These left wing social issues are just norm. And I asked Kaufman, does this happen in the UK? Like, does your department, like in a typical university, uh, send you regularly send you political propaganda? And he said, no, that, does, that generally doesn't happen. Um, and then, you know, the UK has like hate speech law. So like, they'll come after you when the US doesn't have that. So the government will never come after you uh, for saying, you know, for saying the wrong thing about a race or a, or a sexual orientation or whatever. So it's, it's a little bit uh, different. I, I, I think, but I do think the US, in the US, the class polarization um, is more sort of total. And it was going in that direction. But I think Trump was a really an accelerant for that. Um, like, you know, white... Uh, White college graduates still voted Romney, you know, as recently as 2012. And that just, you know, that just flipped, that just flipped in 2016 and 2020. So you're, so you're moving in the other direction. Uh, and so it'll be interesting. I think Trump is still here, still going to be here for a while. And so, you know, as long as he's around, you know, that, that's going to be a, uh, uh, that's going to be a sort of, I think these trends are going to stay. The question is, is it more permanent? And, you know, we'll, we'll see. It was moving in that direction. It was just Trump was just like a super acceler- accelerant, who, a guy who really appealed to the lower class, you know, lower class whites in particular, and then who really, really turned off college educated people. And, you know, he's, he's a singular figure. So I, I think without him, it wouldn't be as extreme, but, you know, it's the direction again, where were we going? So, um, it's kind of f- final question. Um, Charlie Songhurst, he's like this investor and whatever strategic thinker. He, uh, he's got this thing where he asks, I mean, but I haven't lived my life that way. Like if I live, you know, I could have lived my life in a way where I could have had a, a career in politics or something like that. And I've sort of. Okay. Let's move on from there. This is uh, Noah Smith, the opinion columnist, talking with Misha Saul. Is about even with us, but other than Canada, we easily beat European countries, um, you know, other countries. So. And those countries are more generous usually with their welfare states, but we, we really pulled it out. And what's interesting is that our basic, the basic architecture of our code relief was designed by Republicans, Stephen Mnuchin, um, who was, you know, this out of touch, like rich guy hack who just hated the poor and like, you know, posed with like tons sure. of money with his trophy wife. And this, this guy, you know, like <laughs> socialists love to hate him. And then, and then he comes out and he designs like the most generous and effective program of like government, unconditional like government benefits and just flings trillions of dollars at everyone in America. That was amazing. And, you know, it wasn't completely free of partisan fighting because there was a holdup in the fall when Mitch McConnell sort of like canceled the pandemic unemployment insurance temporarily and, you know, held up some stuff. But then in December, we got back on it and then we passed the third bill after Biden took office. And it was just, you know, consumption in America went up during COVID. Yeah, like Australia, Australia's been the same. Australians has had a much smaller, obviously, but like kind of analogous experience where savings and, and consumption has, has massively increased. And right. it was kind of net wealthy after a global pandemic, which is strange. Right. And so... But, you know, keep in mind, Australia uh, managed to escape the virus mostly, yeah. whereas America did not. We were very bad at suppressing the virus. And that was what made a lot of people, including me, say, oh, we're in decline. We can't even produce goddamn mask, you know. 
we can't produce masks. We can't do tests. We can't, you know, um, uh, suppress the virus. We're just, we're screwed. So it's very pessimistic. And now. Okay. Getting, getting back to the question, would Rabbi Batea react to anti-white statements with the same fervor? Well, you wouldn't expect someone who's primarily, primarily identifying as Jewish to react as strongly to negative slurs about other groups. So I'm sure Rabbi Batek also would identify as white, but his primary identification is Jewish. So it's unrealistic to expect people with very strong in-group identity to react, you know, equally strongly to threats to to a group, you know, outside of their own intensely identifying in-group. You know, I'm, there's still a lot of things I'm worried about. There's still a lot of things I'm pessimistic about, but I am on sort of on the optimism train here, just seeing how a new sense of urgency has taken over. Um, it remains to be seen if that will last. It could be that partisan infighting will stop it. It could be that the Trump people will stage an, another coup attempt, you know, um, a little while from now. So it's really hard to say. And, you know, uh, I see if you want an analog for America, I think our closest analog is probably France, hmm. um, where you just have, you know, like absolute, you know, intermittent chaos. Right, and just well, I'm very bearish running. France. I mean, I, I, know every, I know it's very popular now geopolitically to say France is on the rise, but I'm like, France is like a disaster hundred year story, basically. But France is, you know, it, it always does pretty well. Um, France has, we have more of an excuse than France because we're bigger. We're a lot bigger than France. Uh, France should be doing better than it is. America is, is pretty impressive. France didn't produce any, you know, new COVID vaccines, or maybe they did, but it wasn't very good. I don't remember. But the point <laughs> is that um, in the, in many of the ways that matter, America has, has done well. Um, there are a few things. So, so one thing is that all the things that people in America worry about are not really the things that are worth worrying about. So for example, do you remember the war on Christmas? Yeah, I do remember that. I do, the uh, war on Christmas. It's like people you know, worried about store greeters saying like, happy holidays yeah, instead of Merry yeah. Christmas. <laughs> oh no. <Yeah. laughs> That's something serious. All right. That, that is destroying your hero system, your sense of meaning. It, it's you know, impinging on you know, your, your traditions, your, your way of life. All right. It would, it would be like... Uh, going to synagogue and no longer saying, you know, greeting people with regard to the Sabbath or with regard to, to you know, Jewish New Year, et cetera, and, and instead having to water that down to some, you know, anodyne generalized statement. So people on the left and on the center who are secular they don't get why there's a sense of dis-ease with the reduction of you know, Christian Christmas and Christian observance. So in Australia, everybody says Merry Chrissy. Everybody says Merry Christmas, Merry Chrissy. Because it's a more cohesive society. <laughs> Who cares? And then, or like, I don't even know what people are now worried about critical race theory. So Noah Smith is a secular Jew. His ancestors are from Lithuania. Critical race theory in our schools. And like, when I was a kid, it was... You know, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, no, no, satanic no. rituals I, in our schools. I want to push back hard on that one. I think um, no. I'm one of those people who's like, this is total madness, and um, and it's kind of scary. You know, I, I've uh, uh, critical race theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because by, I, let's make it clear for the listeners: by critical race theory, we don't mean the academic stuff that like professors are putting out in papers. We mean stuff like Tima Oaken's training sessions, where she says like punctuality is white supremacy. Yeah, it's another chink in the social trust armor. Like it brings people together when everyone can say Merry Chrissy or Merry Christmas. Right? The more you have in common, all right, the more social trust, more social cohesion, the better people get along, right? The less you have in common, the more diversity, the worse people get along and the less they trust each other. Why would you not want common bonds in a society? Another such nonsense. Yeah, basically, because, yeah. Um, you know, it, that's it's, right. But yeah, I mean, I kind it's, of, it's goofy. 
it's goofy. Not, but, but, but it's not just incorrect and goofy. I kind of um, you know, see it seeping into other places. You know, I mean, there are increasing like racial surveys in, you know, employment, um, you know, places of employment, in, even in Australia, when they're kind of connected to US institutions. And, and, and that kind of stuff makes me like deeply uncomfortable in kind of that, that, that kind of race essentialism that, and, and, you know, my fears of it kind of stoking, you know, white, you know, white, white identitarianism and the like, I find that like deeply uncomfortable. You know, I'm a child of, of the 90s where, you know, everyone pretended race didn't exist. And I'd rather pretend race doesn't exist than, you know, race, I'd rather you mean everyone in Australia everything. pretended race didn't exist? Yeah, well, maybe that's right. You, know, you, you can tell in America, me more. we had the Los Angeles riots. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, that was in the 90s. We had O.J. Simpson in the 90s. <laughs> you, yeah. maybe you. So this Noah Smith is incredibly smug and pompous and condescending. Yeah, there's been a growing movement in the United States from the 1950s into the 1990s to try to pretend that race doesn't exist. Right? This isn't a movement that was unknown in the United States. There was... An ideological movement, there was a social and cultural movement to try to pretend that race doesn't exist. Obviously, race exists, race matters, race is real, race is frequently the primary source of identity, but there was tremendous social and cultural pressure in the United States to try to pretend that race doesn't exist. You pretended race didn't exist. Yeah. We did not. Well, and, and look, and maybe even other Australians would disagree with me, you know. So, but 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 I guess the, the general arc was that hey, it's multicultural. We're all kind of in this together, you know. No worries. Whereas now it's kind of like, well, you know, um, you know, you know the, the, the the so I was at Royal National Park uh, two days ago, and it's right next to Cronulla, and so I just start uh, talking to an Aussie. G'day, how's it going, mate? And uh, I think I mentioned Cronulla. I said, oh, yeah, wasn't that where, where you had the you know, the riots about 15 years ago? And this was a local bloke said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you really don't want foreigners coming over here disrespecting your ways. And so that was like the signal that we could go off and talk about how Australia doesn't need any more immigration. So we're on the same wavelength politically. Like I kind of edged into it. I said, oh, I came to Cronulla, what their riots here. The, the beaches are Australia's cathedrals. You don't want you know people coming and desecrating your your cathedral and harassing Australian women. You particularly don't want you know foreign immigrants you know engaged in that sort of behaviour. So we, we immediately got on the same wavelength. And he said, I don't know why the elites you know want to hurt us, why they want to you know make us minorities in our own homeland. <laughs> and so yeah we we got on a pretty similar wavelength as we were marching through the Royal National Park bush. Oh, this is what was different though compared to Americans. This is much more of a dominant Australian attitude. There's nothing we can do about it. We might as well just enjoy ourselves as as much as possible. So in America, there's much less fatalism in America, there's much more sense yes there we need to organize, we need to fight back. Now we need a second American revolution, all right? In, in Australia, far more fatalism. Oh, there's nothing we can do about it. So America fought for its freedom in the Revolutionary War, and Americans have much more of a sense of agency that they can band together and petition the government and overthrow the government if necessary and have another American revolution. Australians much more likely to have that. Oh, there's nothing we can do about it. So when nuclear war was much more of a threat in the 1980s, and New Zealand's decided we're not going to allow American nuclear vessels to dock in New Zealand ports. And there were protests against nuclear weapons. And a very common thread that I noticed in Australia, but virtually never noticed in the United States was, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, if 
we, we might as well just, you know, party and have a good time. There's nothing we can do about it. You don't hear that many Americans say, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. Might as well just get together with our friends and enjoy ourselves as much as possible. So much stronger threat of fatalism in Australia and in England compared to the United States. You know, the critical race theory want to kind of resegregate, you know, in terms of, no, 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 this is a black only space and this is a white only space. And I kind of feel that whole you know, movement is growing. It is being exported out of the US. It is seeping from the kind of edges into the center of things. And it has like meaningful, dangerous, uh, you know, potential outcomes. So even though it's like goofy, you know, we can laugh at these crazy kind of B-grade academics issuing these random theory papers and that's kind of fine and who cares? Like I, I kind of seeing as being imported and seeping into broader culture, which I find like can be quite scary. Well, you know, I think you're talking about just something much more broad than I was talking about. And so I think there's a few things to understand here. One is that America goes through these periods where we, um, or at least this is the second period that we've gone through where we really. Okay. So some Jews are kind of getting tired of this victimhood mentality, such as what was demonstrated by Shumali Batek. So many Jews would support him. He's fighting for the Jewish people. Uh, other Jews would say, you know, I'm kind of getting tired of this victimhood mentality. So maybe Shumali Batek there was you know, exaggerating about a hate crime after some drunk dude said free Palestine to him, right? So that's what some Jews tells me. And, you know, when, when, when you know, rabbis go to the media, you know, every time that there's some, you know, some, you know, something that can be perceived as, you know, hostile to the Jews, right? Uh, the victimhood mentality, it's a powerful source for in-group identity, but it's also kind of unmanly. Which is why you know that that drunk uh, Arab seeming guy kept saying, you know, you're a woman or you're a pussy, because the, the rabbi took great offense to them just saying free Palestine. So, what do you do if you're a Jew or if you're a member of an in group and you feel like you're living, you know, a secret life from the rest of your community, which seems much more invested in a victimhood identity, and with crying out, ah, oh, you know, the world is is falling apart. Jews can no longer safely express themselves as Jews, right? So what do you do when you when you can't identify with your community's sustained level of victimhood? So in Orthodox life, uh, anti-Semitism is not a major theme, right? Orthodox Jews, by and large, aren't particularly concerned about anti-Semitism. There's no sense of mission to fight anti-Semitism. There's nothing in the Torah about fighting anti-Semitism. So this obsession with anti-Semitism, primarily an obsession with Jews who are particularly involved in Judaism, right? This is their secular way of filling their God-sized hole because they don't really want to practice the religion. That is Noah Smith talking with Misha Saul. We really, um, we play with the idea of like explicit racial quotas and everything. And we did this in the seventies. Um, and then we, you know, we're doing it again. We think, you know, and so enthusiasm for this comes and goes. In the 2000s, it was really kind of on the way out. The Supreme Court ruled against certain affirmative action programs and, and lots of affirmative action programs were, were taken away. Um, it really depends on what the Supreme Court does because the Supreme Court's standard of, well, you can't have explicit racial discrimination, but diversity can be an important uh, consideration. The Supreme Court always, you know, uses a, you know, when you see it standard for everything, just like it did for pornography. And so really what's going to happen is that um, that that legal reckoning is eventually going to come with a lot of these things. And once the um, once the people on the right realize that they're not going to like do a coup to take over the government and instead they've just got to like sue, then they'll sue. And they'll, you know, and the, the, the diversity standard will be challenged in the Supreme Court. And, you know, a lot of the explicit racial, you know, like 
racialization in institutions will depend on the outcome of a whole bunch of court cases. But the, the people on the right have to stop, you know, acting out and start suing. And one of the reasons this hasn't uh, most people on the right are not acting out and participating in January 6th type riots. Happened is because we've had this transformation in America where all the intellectuals like are on the left. You know, back that's that's bizarre. In his world, all the intellectuals are on the left. I mean, uh, there's no left wing equivalent of a Steve Saylor or, or Charles Murray. Right? These are giant intellectuals, you know, far above anything that the left can provide. So back in the day, you had, like you had a lot of leftist intellectuals, but you had a lot of rightist intellectuals who would, who would fight them. And now intellectuals are on the left. And then all the, but, but, you know, this is, this means that all the people on the right are kind of, you know, like boat dealers and stuff like, and, and boat dealers don't, you know. <laughs> that, that, that's such a, a primitive, pompous, you know, superior blanket view of reality. They're not, they don't really think in terms of like lawsuits and, 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 you know, principle, legal principles and stuff like that. They think in terms of like, you know, I'm going to like, like, you know get in my SUV and go invade Washington or something like that. And it's just a, it's a, it's a stupid way to think. But the problem is that there aren't many intellectuals on the right who can sort of point toward a better way for a lot of these people. It's it, the head has been cut off. Absolute nonsense. Just no bearing in reality. Noah Smith, just interesting guy at times, but just incredibly pompous of the right. And that's the, that's the biggest, the biggest damage from the left's domination of academia and intellectual spaces is that the right has no head anymore. And have you seen Princess Mononoke? The cartoon? No. Yeah, and uh, Glenn Medley says so many non-Orthodox Jewish organizations have gone heavily into promotion of Jews of color since George Floyd. Yeah, so most Jews who aren't Orthodox Jews tend, in, in America anyway, tend to be on the left, and so Orthodox Jews are less likely to be influenced and to change what they say and do and think because of mainstream culture. But Jews who aren't Orthodox are much more influenced by the milieu around them. They also tend to be highly educated in, in secular studies, so much more exposed to the university kind of left-wing perspective on life. And so that's why these non-Orthodox Jewish organizations, right, they're kind of mirroring in large part what you know Episcopalians and Anglicans and mainstream Protestants are doing. Okay, well, there's a time when there's this forest spirit and they shoot off its head and it turns into a rampaging monster. And mm -hmm. I feel like that is what the conservative movement and the political right has become in America. It, you know, back in the days of Reagan, you had a lot of conservative intellectuals. And, you know, that doesn't mean I think they were right about stuff, but still, they, you know, they had a fundamentally intellectual argument and case for everything and worldview. And now you don't have that. And so it's like the... the, the... Absurd. Absurd. I mean, this is the guy who will block you if you say the slightest thing about race. But this is, this is not someone who can engage in open intellectual discourse but uh, he's going to pronounce judgment that the right lacks you know, intellectuals. All right, here's a rabbi, a philanthropist, and Misha Saw discussing shame and online mobs. Um, thought they would be on and above the law, held a uh, engagement party in clear breach of all lockdown protocols. The lockdown protocols, by the way, that all of us... Talking about an engagement party in Melbourne in violation of COVID lockdown protocols. Suffering through, that all of us are going through. Um, thought that the rules didn't apply to them, um, held a, a simcha in their home um, publicly. Um, everything's on the internet these days, so you can see the video recording, whatever it was. M made a joke of the lockdown restrictions that are imposed that all Australians are having to live by from very difficult circumstances. Um, and accordingly, not only did they get caught, not only did they spread COVID in their own community, but they brought shame to the Jewish community. And I think um, they should certainly be held accountable for the shame that they brought. Um, I think it's a sad indictment. It was a sad day for our community. Um, and we all, you know, particularly those people, and I think, you know, it is important that we say, like, they were clearly, you know, a religious family. 
and that I would hope that people, you know, um, that are religious hold themselves to a you know, higher standard. Perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, than people that are completely irreligious. Yeah, that's completely wrong. All right, the more religious the Jew, the less likely he is to be secular law, right? The, 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 the correlation goes in the opposite direction from what he says. Um, and that, that I think the outcry has been, you know, justifiable in my, um, as far as I'm concerned, from the Jewish community and from the broader community at their actions. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, that's, that's quite a strong, you know, right out the gate. I think, um, yeah, yeah, you were pretty pissed off. And it's funny, since then, and just to kind of clarify, the, the, the fact base is basically, you know, a, a, a very orthodox religious family in Melbourne held um, an engagement party, effectively in direct breach of lockdown rules. And so there's a video leaked with like 100 people or something, I don't know the exact numbers in this room, and, uh, and they're kind of making light of it. And so, I mean, it's a lovely speech, whatever. But then... Um, and uh, Rushton asked, what did these conservative intellectuals ever concern? Well, the United States won the Cold War. Maybe some conservative intellectuals played a role there. Uh, they, under Reagan, managed to roll back some government intrusion into our lives. There was a 1% reduction in government spending in GMP. The economy took off. So America stands as the dominant power in the world today. So the United States... You know, compared to other nations, is a behemoth. It's a formidable power, and so certainly got its problems. But you still have a high-functioning state that is incredibly powerful, with an incredibly powerful economy. That's the most influential nation in the world, militarily, economically, culturally, in academia. So, for all its problems, the United States is still the most powerful, influential nation in the world. Uh, perhaps conservatives played some role there. It emerged that you know someone had COVID, and it's not only had they breached it, they had actually spread it, and you know that was one of the. It was you know, and then in the following days, you know there was all this vitriol on Facebook about them from you know the Jewish community, you know really going after this family. I think it goes a little deeper, like the uh, you know there are like there are a handful of doctors in attendance, you know the the the, the would be grooms or, or brides, you know family are, are doctors, you know. And in the following days, I saw you know Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, came out and kind of scolded the state, and and harsher restrictions were put on, kind of partly because of, of things like this. And um, you know I saw some, you know, I, I got lots of messages from randoms throughout the day showing you know the kinds of comments that, that were out there um you know people were sending around the the um the, the medical practice of some of the attendees kind of shaming them and you know it was uh, it was pretty um it was pretty intense and you can understand melbourne's just gone through 18 months of lockdown or 10 months of lockdown or whatever it is and people are pretty pissed off and people are trying to buy by the rules and trying not to get locked down and then you have a pretty flagrant breach and um, and it's almost arrogant in in many respects and um, and, it, and it does end up spreading covid and i think people kind of you know echoing your outrage um kind of were uh, uh uh, we're we're pretty pissed off. So, so I guess that, that's a topic of of today. I guess you, Laura, you made your reaction clear. So why don't I tell you my immediate uh, reaction, and then we can hand over to to the rabbi. And Rustin says, "I have to worship homosexuals, but at least I have a nice paycheck." Well, no matter what happens in the world, Rustin always sees that it's hopeless, and <laughs> we're living in. You know, the 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 dissolution of all that is good. So it doesn't matter the variable. It doesn't matter the the news event, it's always hopeless. We're a defeated, destroyed people. Uh, where do you have to worship homosexuals, Rustin? I, I don't really think that uh, what you're saying is accurate. You don't have to worship homosexuals. Also, you get to be part of the nation that's the most powerful nation on earth. So if you're able to make a difference in this nation, that those differences will you know, radiate uh, out across the globe. So no, I don't think it's all completely hopeless.
Bye-bye. So I think, um, you know, I think all that's kind of right, that they, were, they, they did the wrong thing, you know, kind of broke the rules and took assumed risk. And that risk actually eventuated, you know, they actually did end up spreading COVID and there was an arrogance and, and a certain hubris with it. But I guess to me, what's probably even, um, you know, what I reacted stronger to was the mob that followed and the kind of online vitriol that that followed and the kind of very very emotive intense hounding that followed and and I was quite um quite you know I felt deeply uncomfortable um by that and um, I think part of it's the mob rule thing I think we should resist the mob um and I think um secondly you know I was reflecting on, on something I'd read recently by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and um and so I thought I'd, I'd read a little bit of of him and and it kind of touches the 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 heart of the issue I think where he talks about um uh, you know, Judaism being a guilt culture, not a shame culture. And um, and just to kind of quote the, the passage from one of his essays, he says, in shame cultures, what matters is the judgment of others. Acting morally means conforming to public roles, rules, and expectations. You do what other people expect you to do. You follow society's conventions. If you fail to do so, society punishes you by subjecting you to shame, ridicule, disapproval, humiliation, and ostracism. In guilt cultures, what matters is not what other people think, but what the voice of your conscience tells you. Living morally means acting in accordance with internalized moral imperatives and then it goes on to say shame is public okay so by those standards that uh, rabbi Sachs just outlined judaism definitely far more of a shame culture than a guilt culture it's the very opposite of his conclusion uh, rabbi Sachs wrote a lot of beautiful words he, he sounded very erudite but uh just a lot of beautiful words frequently misaligned, not, not according with, with reality. It's just like beautiful words, beautiful words, uh, not, not so much substance with Rabbi Sachs. Okay, interesting story here in the LA Times, right? Los Angeles Times. For all their ferocity, California stores were not likely caused by global warming. Right? This is the LA Times. So every, almost every article about the recent storms in California Every article was telling us that this was related to global warming. But uh, interesting pushback here in the Los Angeles Times news section. Right? This isn't an op-ed. As California emerges from a two-week bout of deadly atmospheric rivers, a number of climate researchers say the recent storms appear to be typical of the intense periodic rains the state has experienced throughout its history. They, the, these storms are not the result of uh, global warming. All right, not the result of, of global warming, right? Completely going against the media narrative. So media and officials, political officials were quick to link a series of powerful storms to climate change. But uh, researchers interviewed by the Los Angeles Times said they had yet to see evidence of that connection. Instead, the unexpected onslaught of rain and snow after three years of punishing drought appears akin to other major storms that struck California every decade since experts began keeping records in the 1800s. So we know from future climate models that global, global warming will boost California's storms of the future, but we haven't made that connection with the latest storm systems, says this one climate scientist. Assuming that these storms are driven by global warming would be like assuming an athlete who breaks a record was on steroids. So Mike Anderson. Official state climatologists for California suggest the recent series of atmospheric rivers, long plumes of vapor that can pour over the West Coast was a grim reminder that in a place so dry, sudden flooding can bring a catastrophe. News and social images of the storms were harrowing. 
But in a region whose water supply has been severely depleted by more than two decades of mega droughts stoked by climate change, researchers suggested that some observers were too quick to reach for superlatives. As a group, I call meteorologists always hype the current situation to make it seem worse than the last one. Right? I mean, this is true as so many experts, all right, that uh, you can tell that they're enthralled to the left. They want to emphasize, you know, that which is you know, hospitable to their, to their left-wing narrative. And they, they just, you know, seize every event and then frame it into that left-wing narrative. Meteorologists. I mean, this is true for so many experts. So these storms were not one of a kind. It was nothing as big as what we've gone through before. Right? This mid-winter's precipitation was far behind the 1956 season. So some scientists say this, these storms were a taste of the kind of meteorological tumult Mother Nature has in store for the future. Rain that falls in California stays in California. Okay, so many researchers contacted with the Times, they show no connection between recent storms and global warming. So you, you didn't expect to keep that, that pushback against the, the global warming narrative in the uh, Los Angeles Times. Public humiliation, guilt is inner torment. And so, um, and so I guess where I felt uncomfortable is that, you know, people ought to be, you know, to, to kind of face up to the consequences of their actions, but the public shaming really rubbed against me. And I, and I thought uh, that was a, that was maybe a, a, a cultural useful context that, that Rabbi Sachs alludes to. So time Rabbi, where, where am I right? Where am I wrong? What, yeah, there's, what there's a lot of things going on. I think we need to gonna try to uh, fix it and do what's necessary to fix it or to minimize the damage, or are you going to just let your anger run wild and everything that comes along with that? So, you know, when you think about internet and social media and the power that it has, I think this is a, a very good example of that. You know, it is the right thing to do to take um, a crime and, a, you know, like I said, an arrogant crime and to exacerbate it and to, you know, to let it run, let, let the fire run wild on the internet with all the power that it has, uh, leading up to, we saw an example of somebody saying, you know, that they should burn the gas chambers. You know, I think that was all a result. I think, again, it's not like, you know, somebody who's, who's hateful Jewish people obviously had it in the heart beforehand, but you can't deny that. Hang on, can, I, can I just step in here? I mean, like, we know all you have to do is just give the, the silent mob on the internet the slightest fame, the littlest spark, just the opportunity to vent their anger, to display, you know, the anti-Semitism that we know is lingering in community. So why? why like, so my issue isn't with, like, why are we focusing so much on, like, why, what the, the severeness of the response is? I mean, like, the severeness of the response is inevitable when someone does something that's so clearly in transgression of, like, a public health order that everyone in the country is living by. So I think the issue is not around... Um, for me, it's not around like, I think the response from people is, is like unfortunate, but predictable, but rather I'm what I'm interested in is uh, uh, like, as Jews, do, uh, should we hold ourselves accountable to our standard is the way we behave or are particularly that are people that are religious. Like, should... Okay. How about you just hold yourself responsible Hello. to the same standard as everybody else. All right. Good discussion here between Ann Coulter and Ryan Godersky. I could never work for anyone besides myself because I would never tolerate it. And yes. my, my employees, I say, just don't talk about anti-white activism, do anything stupid. That's my big talk to them is like, just Hi. don't. And, and with so many of these DEI officers, one, if your job is to find racism and sexism. So DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and your job yes. is to find it. Better find it. 
liked it. And But in so many of these times where you have the guy or the woman or whoever making a comment or saying things, that's usually a singular problem. And those problem cases can be taken care of without having to, let's have a conversation on, you know, your gender pronouns and how you feel every day. You don't need to have that conversation because <laughs> one guy says a comment to a woman on at the workplace. It drives me crazy. It repulses me. And it makes it... And it, and it literally, and I think that there's so many men out there who, the reason partially I think men have dropped out of certain parts of our culture, they're not getting mm-hmm. married, not even working as much. For some reason, mm-hmm. uh, labor force participation has never picked up post 2008. It, it was 67% for decades, and it's now 61%, and it's, they can't get the, those people, those men especially, back into the workforce. I think partly because they're, they, why, get, why get harassed? Why get sit there and be belittled time in and time out for a job that you may not necessarily like, and that doesn't value in keeping you for 50 years like maybe your grandfather's job at the you know at the four found factory was or whatever the case may be i just think that if if we're we're though the leftists and the libertarian the leftists especially like the mickey castle of the world and i love mickey so it's not me ripping on mickey but those kinds of people who are always sitting there and saying oh a corporation clearly would do something wrong if they have the ability cannot look at a person who works for a corporation and see the same exact thing Al Sharpton made money forever being a DEI quote unquote officer or giving some kind of uh, some kind of uh, influence or coverage as as a black man. I mean, right. this is who they are. This is a corporation doing it. Put the same skepticism right. for the working class in your worldview and just realize it's a different kind of working class they're beating down on. It's people who don't have, um, you know, not on top of the of, of the of the ladder of uh, not money but cultural attaché to sit there and, and right. push against these things. Sorry for right. Me. It gets me crazy. No, that's a really good rant. And I did not know that about labor force participation. Very interesting. I was thinking as you were saying that, in addition to being, you know, browbeaten and told that you are an oppressor while you're being just openly discriminated against on the basis of your race, um, you're pretty much SOL when it comes to promotions. You know, every time there's, you know, some major crime, a shooting someplace, and they send out the chief of police, and it's almost always a black woman. <laughs> now, the majority of police in places like these various places aren't aren't black, but it's got to be a black chief of police. You will not get the promotion if you are a white male. You will not be. I don't know if this is happening with fire chiefs. I suspect it is. Um, you, you just want, you won't get the promotion. And try being. Can you imagine being a white male model for TV commercials right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you 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 get a lot of gigs being the guy who breaks into a house. <laughs> Always a white guy breaking into a house. Wait, I'm reading a book on serial killers right now. After I finish the book, on I'm glad my mom got died because uh, I'm very healthy mentally. And um, <laughs> on like the fifth page, it's like you probably think a serial killer is between 20 and 30, and a white man who's autistic with glasses. In fact, did you know whites only white men only account for 45 percent of serial killers, and black men account for 40 percent? I was like, well, yes, I did because I've written FBI statistic before, but. I am so glad that you wrote that in your page four of your book because yeah. yes, of course. I'm. And when was the last time you saw a person on a BIPOC who gets a job and then is re- when they retire or fired or whatever are replaced then with a white man? Almost right. never. You well, can have a white person be replaced with a BIPOC. You can change that sentence from and when they are fired to and when they die and are carried out feet first. Um, no, a, a BIPOC won't get fired. I keep saying the New York Times will go completely under and the last guy working there is going to be Charles Blow. <laughs> <laughs> not be fired <laughs> writes the same column twice a week and he has for however long 10 years he will until until he dies <laughs> <laughs> it's so infuriating 
Uh, yeah, that's exactly why you need DeSantis and the Woke Act and whatever kind of other laws you get anywhere you can possibly get it. And don't assume that because something is not being done now, it won't be. So include it in that. Yes. Just because it's not in some other field, that it won't get there. It will 1,000% get it. It's like when Teddy Kennedy said, don't worry, Asians will never come to America if we open our floodgates and change them. <laughs> they will never be an Indian owner of a gas station like 50, 60 years ago. Yes. Yes. Oddly, liberal predictions have not turned out well. Well, that's why uh, instead of making um, monetary bets with people, it's the only way I make money now. I make stake bets. Because <laughs> you can always force them, but you've got to make a bet because they, they won't notice that they keep being wrong. And by and large, I keep being right. Certainly like you on the politics, like my bet 2020 that Trump would not get 30% of the black vote. I started with a million dollar bet. I knew that wouldn't work. I went to a thousand dollars and now I'm kicking myself for not making a mistake there. <laughs> you know, uh, those are good. I almost feel bad when people said, this. someone actually said the other day, bet me 10 to one that Michelle Obama will not run for president. I said, I will bet you a hundred to one as long as it's a million dollars starting and you're willing to pay a million. I'll pay you a hundred million because I'm so sure. Okay, interesting story out of Virginia. Author of Nation of Victims, Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, it's always great to have you on. Asra Nomani, who was on our show last night, uh, wrote the following about the Merit Award fallout. Quoting here, uh, 17 schools withheld National Merit Awards, mostly impact Asian students. Going on to say an analysis by Fairfax County Times reveals an estimated 75% of the National Merit semifinalists, a notch above commended students, are of Asian heritage, validating the questions raised in a new civil rights investigation by attorney, Virginia Attorney General Jason Miares. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that they're basically targeting one segment of the population, Vivek. I mean, the assault on merit is really an assault on the American soul, Trace. We have this new culture in our country that penalizes excellence and embraces victimhood. And I'll tell you something, this is deeply personal to me, okay? The way I got ahead in this country, the way my parents taught me to get ahead in this country, they came as immigrants, was through hard work, through dedication, through achievement in education. And there's a reason we don't take this anti-excellence attitude to the sport. Okay, let's uh, get back to this delicious discussion here. And quarter Ryan Gadeski. Garden show on like HGTV. She's not going to run for president. She would. That sounds like the most miserable job in the world versus the greatest life in the world, having a guarantee. Right every six months for writing a ghostwritten book and vacationing. Yeah, so. I was just thinking about this with, with books themselves. I mean, maybe this is a weird analogy, but when you and I write books, um, it's because there's something we're dying to communicate to the world. We want to get this point out here. What is the most appealing way to make this point? How do you, you know, make it funny and interesting? But I want to communicate this information to the world. Whereas I think many political books are um, written, i.e. ghostwritten, by people who just want to hold something and say, oh, look, I wrote a book. And it's the same thing with running for president. You get these, like, I don't know, CEOs, celebrities. Um, I think Oprah was claiming she was going to run for president. They like the idea of, oh, yeah, I'd like to say I'm president. I'd like to be president. They don't realize it's a real pain in the ass job running for any office, much less president. Well, I think that also, I mean, if you are going to run and you don't think you're going to win, your career will be only become recently, your career will only be better by running. 
You know, even 20 years ago, Dennis Kucinich did not get his own show on MSNBC because he ran for president. Um, See, I think it's it isn't a time thing. I think it's liberals versus conservatives. Yes, conservatives run for president. They get rewarded no matter how ridiculous they were, no matter how much they blew up the Republican primary. Oh, we'll give you a radio show. We'll give you a TV show. Democrats, they control the media and they're a little more ruthless. You screw up our primary, you are dead to us. Well, for Tulsi Gabbard, yes, because she took out Kamala Harris. But Pete Buttigieg is the transportation secretary right now. And his like, he thought a train was called a choo-choo. Like, I mean, the man doesn't know anything <laughs> about transportation. No, but that's very common, getting a job. Well, because you're, but his career was better. He was going to run statewide in Indiana. He had to get it in Indiana. He couldn't get a real job. Okay, I'm going to say goodbye. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.